The Fertility Podcast is hosted by me, Natalie Silverman, and you're probably listening, having found your route to parenthood, not quite what you expected it to be. You might have just been told you need to have fertility treatment, you might have had a failed cycle and are wondering what to do next. Maybe there's been other issues that have affected your starting a family and you just feel pretty lost. So you'll hear all sorts of stories from other people who are willing to talk about what they've gone through, as well as interviews that I do with experts and I visit clinics and I talk to people who work in the fertility field. Plus you'll hear me refer to my story because I launched this podcast having had fertility treatment and I'm chuffed to say we were successful. So whilst I don't know what it's like if you're still trying to start a family, I know what it feels like to go through it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast and I'm putting this out on the 2nd of September 2016 and I'm giving you the date because yesterday I saw something amazing. Have a look at a website called sharesomethingamazing.com which launched yesterday the 1st of September 2016 and it's all about becoming an egg donor. Now I'm hoping to get some of the guys involved in this project on the podcast so watch this space but I just wanted to mention it because that's the brilliance of a podcast that you can literally react to something you've seen and I only just spotted it on on Twitter uh, have a look at their website there's brilliant pictures of what they were doing with balloons all around the UK now in this episode we're going to be talking about a subject that I've covered several times in the fertility podcast male infertility and we've got three different people we're going to hear from One is a real story, one is about a film that's coming out in October this year, 2016, and one is about research that's been done on the subject of male infertility. So it's a bit longer than normal, this episode, but I wanted to share this little journey that I've been on because I just think it's so important that we keep talking about this issue with guys, and if you're a guy listening, just know that you're not alone and hopefully the research that you'll hear about will will be of interest. We're going to start off with Kirsten. My husband was diagnosed azospermia, which means he was diagnosed with having no sperm at all. So I'm now going to welcome Kristen to the podcast, who's a lady who left me a message via the Fertility Podcast website, which you can do too. There's a little button on the right-hand side, and you can just leave me a message, tell me a little bit about yourself, like Kristen did, because you had seen me at Fertility Fest, is that right? That's right, yes. We went to the Fertility Fest in Finsbury Park for um, The Quiet House, which yeah. was a play. And yeah. how did you find the whole day? Did you see the play that night? Yeah, we saw the play that night, and... Um, found it just better than I imagined. I really wasn't sure what to expect, um, but I hoped that I would enjoy it because I always like an arts festival. And it was just so well done and it really made a difference to me and my husband. And my husband was more reluctant to go. He was sort of going because I wanted him to come with me and he really loved it too. I haven't been to any of the other shows, I have to say. So I know that there are um, exhibition type shows when fertility clinics are kind of advertising themselves um so I've never been to something like that but and I wouldn't probably go to something like that so I went specifically knowing that it was arts and creative now you've been on quite a journey with your fertility struggle do you want to Mm. tell me what happened and how you felt when you realized that it wasn't going to be as straightforward to start a family as you'd hoped yeah no it was quite a shock I think we were a bit blind to it at first my mum sadly had been diagnosed with cancer for many years and we were very upset about that for many years and I kept thinking that was why we couldn't conceive. I was told it was stress by doctors as well and finally sadly my mum passed away when I was 30 
And um, I think I coped with it particularly well, actually, because we did have such a long preparation for it, if you like. And still we weren't conceiving. So I thought, well, this is strange. I'm really genuinely not stressed what's going on. So we finally went for tests. And um, it turned out at first that I had mildly polycystic ovaries. And so there were loads of investigations into my side of things that went on for probably at least a year. And finally they said, oh, well, we should have a semen sample. My husband was diagnosed azospermia, which means he was diagnosed with having no sperm at all. Right. Um, that was really quite a shock for both of us. Simon actually admitted that he was worried about it the whole time, but hadn't uh, confessed. And to be honest, it hadn't crossed my mind. I feel so ignorant for saying that, but I was convinced that that it would be something with the female body and that it would be something to do with me. Um, and he's so healthy and, in my mind, gorgeous. I couldn't imagine that, that for a moment, you know, these ridiculous conventional ideas that um, a young, healthy man must have healthy sperm and it's just not the case. So it was a shock and he just had to take a phone call from the GP one afternoon when he got this result back. Was he at work? Um, he was actually, yes. Yep. We were both, we do work together. So we were both an accountant's meeting when he took the call. And, and after we'd finished with the accountant, he told me. So at first I was just immediately supportive, I think. I was just, that was my over, overwhelming reaction was, oh my gosh, because I knew he was so upset. And, and obviously I was upset too, but my first reaction was oh this must be awful for him and I have to support him obviously and I said you know it's let's just you know see what this is going to lead to and we'll just take it one step at a time and then I think it's later as it really starts to sink in days and weeks later what this means that it gets harder and yeah it gets very upsetting at different times and it becomes like a roller coaster that you go up and down on which I'm sure many people will identify with. So in the end, we got the referral to Oxford Fertility Unit and they did an extra spin on the sperm and found that there were very few, so literally always less than 20. On one occasion, there was literally one viable sperm. Wow. But it did mean that they didn't have to do the surgical sperm retrieval, so that was a relief. And um, we have been doing IVF with Simon's very limited number of sperm. So ICSI, of course, um, sure. is used. And um, we were very nervous the very first time because we didn't even know if they would be able to fertilize. And then if they fertilized, we didn't know if they would get past day three or get to day five. And um, we were delighted the first egg collection that I underwent, um, we got five or six blast assists. Amazing. And we were just thrilled. We thought we were home dry with that. We were like, oh my God, they work. We've got five blastocysts. This is absolutely amazing. I think it was six, sorry, so six blastocysts. And the nurses and doctors were really positive too. They were like, that's a fantastic outcome. Everybody feeling really positive. So I had a fresh transfer that cycle and I got pregnant the first time. So we just couldn't believe it. After the upset of the whole diagnosis, we just thought, wow, we're the lucky ones, you know, this is working. But sadly, I did have some spotting and they were very reassuring about the spotting. 
So we weren't too worried and I went along for the seven week heartbeat scan and there was no heartbeat. Okay. So it turned into a miscarriage. So we did lose that very first one. But at the beginning, we still were very hopeful. We were like, oh, you know, they were very nice about it and say, of course, it's upsetting, but it is quite common and you may have just been unlucky. So I took three month break. I didn't have to have a scrape or anything like that. It all came away naturally. Um, But I did have early, early pregnancy assessment scans because I had a whole gestational sac and all that stuff Mm. and I did actually end up having a hemorrhage experience a month later because they hadn't gotten everything out so I probably should have had a scrape but we waited a few months and then thought well the frozen transfer will probably work you know we still got four or five in the freezer let's not get too down in the dumps about this hopefully it will work and so by Easter that year um, we tried again and we felt quite positive. Um, but sadly, we then went through three or four frozen transfers that just weren't working. Um, so it was a mix of chemical pregnancies and no, no positive pregnancy result. And um, then the doctors start to be concerned maybe there was something a bit wrong. And they said maybe um, the embryos are chromosomally abnormal. And that's why they're not working because they kept saying that the lining of the womb seems good um the hormone levels all seem fine you know all those sorts of checks they there wasn't a reason why they wouldn't be um sorry to interrupt you had there been any discussions about screening the embryos before transferring them this is when they first suggested it so we we went through all our virtually all of our embryos before they suggested it um and then they said oh dear it's not looking good they're not you know because they're not working maybe you need to be screening so when we went underwent the next egg collection we agreed to to do the do, do the pgs testing and that was in september of last year i think lose track of time and uh underwent another egg collection and did the pgs testing and we had six blastocysts and only one was chromosomally normal um so we were delighted with that and we then thought that one would work we thought well if we have a chromosomally normal one and they say there's all my hormones are right and the uterine lining is fantastic then now we're home dry and um put the embryo back got a positive pregnancy result um and sadly miscarried three weeks into the pregnancy right. um so we were devastated all over again and financially completely wondering how on earth we can try this again had you been self-funding the whole time um so the very first egg collection was um paid for on the nhs but then all the frozen transfers we'd been paying for and the second egg collection and bds testing and transfer we'd been paying for at this stage in in what you were both going through were you receiving any support any counseling support um i was paying for some privately because I was really struggling. My husband and I would talk about things together and he would get very upset as well, but he didn't actually go to counselling himself. I did. Um, And I did try some hypnotherapy type of help as well. Um, But I was very lucky I found a really good counsellor at the time, but of course you have to pay for that privately as well. How were you feeling at that stage of going to the counsellor, having that struggle 
with the communication with your other half, I think, I mean, I've talked about it on the podcast before, but it's so mm. hard with men with the guilt that they feel, especially if the if the issue lies with them and not uh, assuming anything about your relationship. But I think even the strongest and, and most communicative of relationships can just struggle so much during this, what is an overwhelming journey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know where to begin, really. I've, I've found it surprising when I've read other people's commentaries that some women have said that the men aren't as involved or, or don't under, don't feel as sad about miscarriage um, as the woman does, because in our experience, Simon has been just as devastated as I have. I was talking in my previous episode about miscarriage, actually, and um, touched on some work that a lady called Julia Bueno was doing about marking miscarriage and not wanting to to just stop you in your story but was mm. that something that the that the two yes it did actually help us so we were struggling after the second miscarriage in particular um so we'd been through by that time we'd tried seven embryos um so it was the seventh embryo that we'd lost and um we finally went for couples counseling at the clinic so we found the, the oxford fertility unit started offering a counselling session as a part of the package. So you get a doctor's consultation and you have a counsellor's consultation included in an egg collection cycle, which I think is a really, really positive step forward because it also meant that we'd sort of already paid for it. It was packaged in. So why wouldn't we take the counsellor consultation as well as the medical consultation? So we did, and I think it encouraged my husband to, to do it with me. And that counsellor suggested that we find a way of marking the grief and um, yeah, doing exactly sort of what you suggested. So we chose to do a perform a little grief ceremony in January um, and we did it in Cornwall, which is where my husband's originally from. And we went down for a little holiday in Cornwall and just for about half an hour whilst we were there, um, we found a beautiful spot and did a little little grief ceremony and I think it really helped both of us to sort of let go of those seven embryos that we we had hoped would be babies because we hadn't been able to do that and you just keep adding and adding to the grief mm. and um, it definitely helped us both. That's good to hear although such a hard thing to have to do. Yeah it was and then I think we both felt a bit awkward like how are we going to do this and we used um little rose buds dried rose buds to sort of be um representative of each one and we let them blow into the sea oh you're giving me goosebumps but what's <laughs> what a special thing and i think it, it's it's so significant to have you share that because i've only just started having people talk about miscarriage whether it's through fertility treatment or not it's all still mm. so you know relevant in this journey to to starting your family and it's it's lovely to hear that taking that time to to, to make those marks because one of the things that i've kind of been talking with people about is there is that feeling from society to just get on with it and as you know mm. from a fertility journey you know when there's all people around you falling pregnant and the people that you've start to feel isolated from because they just don't understand yeah and even the doctors at the clinic are like okay next time what are we going to do now egg collection again and you're like whoa wait a minute Slow down. it's a shock like wait a minute no we can't go straight in again and do this over and over and over and over again yeah I'm really glad though for for our clinic that they recognized that and have included now this counsellor 
session. Um, I've been to Oxford Fertility actually in one of my um, clinic visits and it's quite remarkable that you can see the lab when you walk in isn't it? Oh yeah that's great. (laughs) Quite bizarre but it's fascinating. Yeah no I like that too yeah you can see the lab and I like to I kind of try to imagine which freezer (sighs) our embryos are stored in and like wave to them. (laughs) We did then after we marked these Uh, the grief of the seven embryos that we tried and lost, we were able to go into doing more. And um, we were recommended to do two more egg collections back to back so that we would have a store of embryos for testing because we were getting a fairly high number of blastocysts, but they weren't chromosomally normal. So they hoped then we would have, you know, maybe two chromosomally normal from two egg collections, for example. So we did that and um, we just kept everything frozen and they all went off for the PGS screening together. But for whatever reason, we had lower egg numbers. They didn't think it was because I was getting older. I'm 35 now. So I was 32 when we did the first egg collection and we were married at 28, quite young. So we've been trying for four years before we even got our diagnosis. It's been Um, a very long journey. It has, yes. It has been a long journey. Seven years now since we were married and started trying for a family. How do you feel now, having had the experience of counselling and the the marking of the miscarriage, how do you feel your husband is when it comes to talking about how he feels? Has, has he been able to talk to any of his male friends about it? Yeah, he has actually. From the beginning, he was able to speak to his father about it and his best friend and then over time he's been able to even start talking to strangers about it not complete strangers but other like for example at the fertility fest we went to he met a guy for the very first time or a couple of guys for the very first time and was able to share his story and his experiences with them um so he's pretty good about that um that we're still a bit sensitive, so we still pick and choose who we tell and when and etc. And actually, it was only just the beginning of this year that we told some of our family. Um, so it, it's it's interesting. You might feel more able to tell certain friends, and then you know, actual blood relatives don't don't know for longer. So um, I had a very similar experience. I actually told my father-in-law, we told my father-in-law and his partner about our treatments the eve of Fertility Fest because I'd been working there during the day and uh, Um. my husband and my little boy were there and they were quizzing me on what I'd been doing. And I (laughs) said to my husband, you know, I don't want to lie. And so that was quite an interesting experience. And, And how did you feel... The response was were people because were you worried that you were going to get pity yeah I wonder if Simon worries he would get pity I quite appreciate people looking concerned because <laughs> it is a serious matter I think I find it more shocking when people act like oh oh yeah that's no big deal maybe you'll adopt then and I'm like whoa whoa that shocks me more so I prefer um personally I prefer a reaction of oh gosh that must be really hard yeah um so if that's pity then yeah I I like a bit of pity (laughs) so I don't think that was ever a concern I think there is that well-known issue of what will people 
think about Simon? Will they think he's less of a man or will he worry that they might think that? And I think he knows very clearly in his mind that it's a medical matter. It's not his fault. He's not anything he's done wrong. And he explains that straight up when he tells somebody. And they, I think, are really impressed that he can tell them. And they're just sympathetic and are really amazed that he can tell them, I think, and, and appreciate that he's able to tell them. And I think, yeah, it educates people. Well, for sure. And, and it's people like your husband and his way of, of communicating about it that will hopefully help other guys feel less guilty. And, uh, and I'm sure you agree that was conveyed so well in the Quiet House play, hearing the, the male character's feeling of guilt and how he tried to overcome that by you know the journey that they were going through. Occasionally, he's had a little cry, like maybe only twice ever. And he said, I just feel so bad for you that you're having to go through this because of me. And I always reassure him and say, well... I love you and I'm really sorry for you that you have this problem and, and it's okay. That doesn't come up that often. Sometimes that practical nature is is what can kind of set the guy aside in the whole dealing process. Yeah. Yeah. So where yeah. are you now with what you're going through? From the two egg collections that we did this year, back to back, we had four embryos that went for PGS testing and we got back the results um, which was one chromosomally normal, so we're delighted about that, and we're about to have a frozen transfer with that chromosomally normal embryo. Now, just a word of warning to people on the podcast, I didn't know this is possible, but I assumed the other three would be either normal or abnormal, and I thought that was why we were doing the testing and then we'd know. But actually, it's not always the case, and on this occasion... We were told one has a partial error, but they think we should still try it. And the other two were inconclusive and they think we should still try them. Wow. So we're actually still looking. Yeah, we paid for PGS testing, but we're still going to be trying all four. So I think really the doctors should make people aware that that might be the outcome of the results because they don't want to discard embryos that they're not sure are unhealthy if they are unhealthy they'll tell you and they can be discarded but you know if they're not sure then your pgs testing they'll still just try putting them back in the in the womb the pgs testing is kind of sidelined but it's really interesting because i've as i'm sure you know been to a lot of clinics and a lot of them are talking about the pgs testing and i haven't had that conversation anywhere where that inconclusive result has been explain so thank you for for sharing Mm. that it's really good for people to know and I can explain it a little bit more from my it's only my understanding um that the they are testing the DNA and when they can only really they have one chance at taking the biopsy they take it from the very outer shell of the embryo and um that DNA they biopsied was slightly degraded which meant they couldn't do the test properly but that may be because they had a bit of an issue with the biopsy and then they don't want to redo the biopsy and also the DNA on the outer shell may be slightly degraded but what's important is the DNA on the inside in the inner cell mass and the embryologist was able to tell us that that looked really strong and really healthy you know there's nothing to suggest that the entire embryo had degraded DNA it was just on the outer edge there Wow, it's, I mean, it's it's such a kind of head fuck if, if you yeah. know, language, you know, 
trying to get your head around where you are in the in the process to then have yeah. all these other complications. So you said that there's four, and you said you're going to yes. trial four. In this yeah. next embryo transfer, are you having more than one put in? No, we're going to do one at a time. And actually, there's a rule anyway, but we wouldn't have wanted to put two anyway. But there is a rule that if one is chromosomally normal, for sure, that you won't put any others back in with it. What yeah. about if you were interested in putting two back and there was the two that were inconclusive? So the two that are inconclusive could go back together, yes, the same as any other embryos, because that may be something we'll consider, but we'll try those last. So that'll be a little bit further down the line before we have to make those choices. You're heading into your next embryo transfer. How are you both feeling? Ridiculously excited again. That's brilliant, though. You <laughs> should be feeling it's so hard. Yeah. I imagine. I mean, I was fortunate to be be lucky first time with my fertility treatment, but to keep Mm. up that positivity when you're going through multiple cycles, and I'm a big believer in a positive mindset having, you know, a a, a beneficial effect on your treatment. Mm. So I think that's wonderful Mm. to hear. Yeah. So we feel like we're at the top of a roller coaster. We know exactly how it feels, you know, if it doesn't work. So we're terrified, but we're really hopeful and excited that we think this is our time this is the one well everything <laughs> crossed for what difference Thank that you. makes Kristen what advice would you give to anybody I always like to ask if somebody's listening and they have found similarities in their journey to yours also with it being a male factor what what would your kind of tips be I think join a support group or whichever way works for you try and find other ladies who are going through the same thing for me the friends I've made actually aren't experiencing it from the male infertility angle though they've got problems of their own but it's really made a difference to me and for the first year or so I didn't have that and I've found it a lot harder so I would reach out to people whether it's some local group you can find or doing it online whichever works for you. So I regret not doing that sooner. I was attending one in St Albans and also at the London Women's Clinic. Is this in... through INUK or is the London Women's their own? I found out about it through the Infertility Network UK, but London Women's Clinic run that. It's Anya Sizer has run it for quite a long time. She was at the Fertility Fest as well. It's Anya. Yeah, she's wonderful. I don't live in London. I travel from outside of London to go to Anya Sizer's support group on Harley Street in London. So I would recommend that to anyone. And are they and free? Alban groups? Yeah, they're all free. Absolutely. They're just run to talk to each other and meet other women who are going through the same thing. And that really just made such a difference. I say I feel positive now and it, it is so important to stay positive and try to, but that is easier said than done and let yourself go through the cycles when you don't feel positive as well because you will eventually come out the other side and I remember people saying to me oh you have to stay positive when I wasn't feeling positive and that's okay too like you can't stay positive the whole time mm. and so just let yourself go up and down the roller coaster because yeah, that's being what kind got. to yourself isn't it yeah yeah and am I right in saying that you're not working at the moment that's true yeah I've just finished working so that's hopefully um another thing that we've changed for this transfer I'm off work and I'm planning to do like crafts and very physically gentle things well I'll keep my mind occupied but um not really leaving the house much <laughs> is my plan this time well look I wish you the best of luck and do keep me Thank posted you. yeah I think it's an exciting time and I'm so chuffed that you reached out to share your story with me thank you thank you for inviting me to speak no, it's been a pleasure thank you Kristen <laughs>
I'm now going to welcome Gary Payton to the Fertility Podcast, who's another of my Twitter discoveries. He's a producer on a new film that's going to be released in October that has a theme in it regarding male infertility. It's called The Crossing, and Gary's from Finite Productions. Welcome, Gary. How are you? Hello, I'm good. Thanks, Natalie. Good. So I'm, I'm really interested in just finding more out about the premise of the film. The Crossing is about Terry, who is suffering from uh, infertility. He's broken up with his fiance about seven years ago and has kind of come across her address somehow and goes back to try and f- work things out with her after he kind of have ruined their relationship because he couldn't deal with not having kids because he really wanted to be a father. And the way the story pans out, is it assumed at first that the problem is with with Kesh, his partner, rather than him? And then does it become more clear that it's the problem with him? No, not at all. We've delved straight into the fact that it's it's all on his side because we felt that it was something that's never really talked about. Jack King, the writer director, was very keen to explore kind of the male side of infertility and and the fact that you know it's it's often talked about and assumed as well someone talks about infertility that it's it's a woman's problem and 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 never really from a male perspective so we wanted to kind of show how difficult that is for a man not to be able to just kind of get on with being a father and and getting on with having kids a lot of the times when we hear about women infertility issues they have ways of going about dealing with that medically and, and in other ways. So what did you find out when you started looking into how men deal with being diagnosed as infertile? They don't talk. Yeah. <laughs> and that was not really a surprise, but it was it, it was more uh, the discovery that, and that's why we never hear anything about it. That's why we, we always associate that oh, it's something that, that women go through. Men, you know, we know that men could have low motility or, or, or things like that, but we always assume that it's something that you can cross over, that a barrier that can be overcome somehow medically again or in other ways. But actually the story that we were trying to tell is that we're kind of starting off from the future of that, you know, way in advance of him being diagnosed and the relationship has broken up. So we're looking back in flashback to to the moment where they tried everything and Terry couldn't have kids and that was a final diagnosis and how a couple would would try and work through that because I think that was the most difficult thing when speaking to to men who have been diagnosed with infertility issues how do they overcome come these issues we wanted to explore how he'd feel you know desperately wanting to be a father but knowing that he can't have kids at all. And that was like a, a full stop on that. And to show how that relationship struggle unfolded, really. I mean, it's fascinating because one thing I'm going to be looking at is, from a female point of view, childlessness. And you're completely right that it's never really discussed about how how a guy would, would, would deal with it. And I'm interested into, as, as well as talking to people, whether there was other references that you could you could find because it's so unspoken about to, to to really get to grips with how Terry could be feeling or is it a kind of presumed artistic license on, on what and how as guys you know you've created this thinking about how you'd feel that you've put into how you developed his character I think it's a bit of both I mean there's a lot of research that went in on the on the front end particularly from Jack's point of view because he really wanted to get inside the head of, of someone who would be going through that so that he could write a you know, a true telling of it. Obviously, it's not based on a true story, but he wanted it to be real, and, and I was very keen for it to be 
as true to the book as possible from the male perspective. So we did speak to men and, and we had, you know, research that we read as well quite a lot to get that character right and to get that struggle right. But it was all very cloaked, you know, that men go on these like really old fashioned forums that look like they're from the birth of the internet and talk under pseudonyms about their problems. And it just reveals how how buried it is really and that's what the, I mean the character when Jack first wrote Terry he was very um, guarded and it was all very internalized and when he had these outbursts of emotion they were uh, almost quite violent with to himself he was beating himself up a lot because he couldn't deal with he couldn't say the words and um, and I think part of the struggle in the story is that when he and his girlfriend uh, sorry his fiance at the time talk about how they're going to overcome it She's kind of trying every angle to to help him, and and he's just not he's not taking any rope. He's just he's not helping himself or her. I think from the the conversations I've had on this podcast related to male infertility, there's such an issue with guilt, and there's such a blame factor that comes into it. You know, the man thinking it's their fault, and like you've said, often with fertility treatments, from the woman's point of view, something physically can be done, and there are ways of sperm retrieval in certain scenarios with men. But you're talking about you know a, a really kind of severe case where the diagnosis is it. There's, there's no other way. Do you think that men are going to come and see this film? Is there going to be much promotion about this infertility angle? I think so. I think it'd be interesting to know that we've definitely got it right. That's always that was always one thing that we set out to do is to is to get that right. It's a drama. It's a psychological drama. So ultimately, it's a piece um, for cinema for people to to watch and and be uh, guided through a story. So again, it's not like documentary or anything like that. So it's not specifically a piece just for infertility issues it's the backdrop of the story so we do want it to be a film that pauses people to talk and to start thinking about this more and so yeah I, I want people to to look at the film and, and and engage with it and and people who have gone through that to kind of hopefully see it as a bit of an outlet for for what they need to do to kind of talk to to overcome their issues especially because the main character has such a massive journey that he goes on to get those issues out of himself, I guess. It's going to be released in October. Give me a bit more information about where people can find it, because I'm hoping we can speak again once it's been released and maybe have a little snippet of the film as well. Of course. It's a short film. It was funded in part by Creative England and the BFI Film Network. So we will be showing the film, hopefully, at one of either London Short Film Festival Aesthetica in York or Encounter Short Film Festival, depending on whether we're successful in getting into those festivals. And then it will go on a wider festival run around the world. We've got a festival plan set up that we will um, push the film out to and see if we're successful at getting that out there. We did run a, a crowdfunder campaign and for people who have helped to fund the film, they get first viewing on it as the film has its rollout release. Um, but we'll, yeah, it's 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 great. I mean, people have been so generous uh, giving to the film and, and and getting behind us making the film and and really trusting that we could tell the story properly. Is that a surprise? I mean, obviously you want people to support you, but were you were you overwhelmed by the support? Definitely, absolutely. I mean, I think that's due to the subject matter. I think a little bit of it is, yeah. And I think I think the treatment of the story as well. We've been quite sensitive, but also quite it's a visceral storytelling from Jack again, and it's just. 
the way he's chosen to weave the stories together, the past, the future, and Terry's dream of having a kid is, is quite beautiful and very interesting and unique. And I think that's why people bought into it. And we were bowled over by the support, totally. So what we might do later on is to maybe do another little campaign where people can pay to view the film early on as well um, as part of like rolling it out towards the festival, I guess. But that's to be decided. <laughs> Keep in touch. And I'm going to put your details on the show notes for the podcast so people can kind of follow you on Twitter because I know you keep updates going on on there. And best of luck with it, Gary. Thank you. It sounds really interesting. And good on you for, you know, putting a spotlight on, as you found out and as I know on this podcast, it's a subject matter that needs more of a voice. Definitely. Yes. Thank you very much. Thanks for, uh, thanks for chatting to me about it. Welcome Dr Esme Hanna, who works at the Centre for Men's Health in Leeds and has been involved in a really interesting study looking at how men use online forums to discuss infertility issues. And I was really keen to know what got her started in this subject area. I do quite a lot of research around men as fathers already, particularly about young men who are fathers. And they're often very kind of unsupported in their fathering endeavours. I'm really interested in how men can be better supported, both for themselves, for their children, but also for their partners and their relationships. And so that morphed into into the work around men and infertility, which again is, is similar in that men are often very unsupported in their attempts to become parents. So similar, but different in terms to other, other work that I'm already doing. So have you found that men are starting to use online forums to talk about this more? We know that people tend to be using the internet for all kinds of health research or communications um, much more for all types of health conditions or health experiences. So it's perhaps in that context, it's kind of unsurprising that men might be using those types of spaces. But there does tend to be much less availability of forums and spaces for men. Um, and men can often find it quite hard to find those spaces or there'll be spaces in which uh, there might be a men only board, but actually women are contributing quite quite readily to that. And what we found is that men actually quite like to talk to other men, specifically about their experiences in a kind of men to men, what we would call a community of practice, where those men are speaking with each other, supporting each other because of their insider knowledge about the experience of infertility within their, their own lives. We know that men can be very expressive um, about their emotions. They'll often use different language to the emotional expression that women will use. So men will talk about getting things off their chest or feeling stressed, where women might have a bigger vocabulary for describing their emotional feelings because they might be doing that emotional work with their friends or family more often than men might be. But we do know that if men feel safe in spaces, they're much more likely to be emotionally expressive. And I think the forums can provide a context that men do feel safe because of some of the features of those spaces, of it being anonymous, of it being men talking to men, and of men understanding that the other men have gone through those same experiences of infertility. So they, they know that they're talking to experts in that sense. And were you finding that men were more likely to come back for repeat visits because the information that they were getting was obviously considered credible rather than it just being like a one-off visit to, to look one thing up yeah you, you would find that there would be repeat posters and that would be part of that building up that community yeah. 
those men or that men would join in with the forum because they'd seen other men sharing and so they knew that other men understood in that sense and so that encouraged them to share because they'd seen other men sharing so that that safety was was quite encouraging for men to both join in and to continue participating and I think it was really interesting as well that your findings showed the similarities in the journeys between men and women they talked about feeling left behind and the emotional roller coaster of it especially if couples aren't communicating that well because it can be so overwhelming and when a man is faced with a woman doing the physical side of fertility treatment if they are going through it and they're just there to try and support as best they can so it's good to know and hear I suppose that they were feeling it. Yeah and I think that the differences of those experiences of of women being the embodied experience of fertility treatment and men having to often feel that they're standing by watching that and that's very hard for the men to to see and experience because the person that they love is having to go through something that's often traumatic. But yeah, they are experiencing very similar similar journeys and really we need to think about how we support couples much better in terms of their experiences of diagnosis and treatment um, for both parties um, because they are the same sorts of things, as you say, that kind of roller coaster of emotions, of feeling that their infertility diagnosis or treatment is ruling their lives and of that of their friends and family often being able to move on and conceive very easily and that can feel quite distressing to to both men and women so we do need to think a bit about how we can join up some of those things in order to support both parts of couples individually and together. And was there any discussion about counselling where the men were thinking about going along, whether they were being pressured by their partners to go along and how they felt about all of that? There was some discussion of, of sort of formalised support. Sometimes men can be kind of sceptical of that type of formalised support, but some men did say that they had had counselling and found it really useful. Um, and that's that individual choice aspect of it, that we need to have a real good range of, of services and provisions people that are experiencing infertility so that they can access the type of support that's useful for them for some people that is professional counseling um, either individually or with their partners for other people that might be communities of practice whether that's online forums or whether support groups in reality rather than virtually or having peer-to-peer you know one-to-one someone to discuss that with but we need to have that range of options because just like with women, not all men are the same and not all men are going to want the same types of support um, for these aspects, and particularly when it's a really sensitive um, aspect of your life, which infertility obviously is. And was there any discussion about how guys manage work when say, they're going through fertility treatment? Because I've talked a lot with women on the podcast about the stress around having to take days off, take sick days. And I'm interested to know whether men were discussing how, how they dealt with it, whether, again, they were taking sick days or they were able to talk to HR or their bosses. There was discussion of, of work and kind of, of receiving bad news at work and how you manage that. And, yeah, who do you tell and when do you tell them and how do you manage that? Or of uh, men discussing that their partners were, were struggling with work. Um, or people having been seen outside the hospital and then someone saying, oh, what's wrong with you? And having to disclose more than perhaps you, you wanted to do. Yeah. So the, the, the element of kind of the work interplay with particularly with treatment um, is an area that's really interesting. There really isn't, hasn't been examined very much. Um, and, you know, historically work has been a space that where men have had power and um, been able to, you know, express their identities. And so whether work is a good um, escape from the home life and the stresses that, that infertility might bring um, we kind of don't really know as much about that in relation to men but yeah there was some discussion um, of work 
That's really interesting. I was sad, though, to hear in the summary of your research, men talking about how they felt during the pregnancy and the impending arrival of their unborn child uh, was kind of affected by the journey it had taken to get there, that they weren't necessarily looking forward to it. I think really it's that kind of the the series of blows that people might have experienced of of bad news, of things not working out, that that becomes almost the norm for people and that, that people often pattern match back to previous experiences. So they've had, you know, bad experiences, things have gone wrong and people pattern match in other situations and think, oh, this might go wrong as well. And so um, I think it's that concern that uh, particularly when you've been highly involved in medicalized processes that um, that people become quite embedded in 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 the medical um, experience. And so that can really, I think, infiltrate into into pregnancy and they're kind of second guessing everything and looking at everything in more detail than perhaps people would be if they'd conceived without fertility treatment um that it becomes a bit of a shadow i think um particularly if it's been you know obviously that treatment's been recent um that all those emotions are still very much heightened for those couples um in that in that space and where can people find out more about the study that you've done? Um, hopefully I can put details of it on the show notes. But the forums that you studied, are you able to share where guys can find out if they are interested in getting involved? Yeah, if, if guys are looking for forums um, to participate in, they, if you go onto a search engine and type in infertility forums plus men or men-only boards, then different boards and forums will come up. Like I say, there's there's slightly less less choice than there perhaps are for women, but there are there are forums out there. There's a variety of them that do exist, or men can obviously start their own forums. I think there is increasingly people are blogging more about these types of things, um, and there is more information out there from from people with lived experience of those things. And often there is lots of research evidence that people can access, open access now, so people can can read about those things, and that can be quite comforting to other people to know that others have had very similar situations and they're not alone in that in their feelings or experiences. Both of the papers are available open access. I can send you the link to those so people can get them for free. Well, it's been great talking to you and I will put the link to your papers and also your Twitter details on the show notes because that's how I found you and you're really prominent uh, sharing the work that you're doing as well as other interesting things regarding male fertility issues. Uh, and actually, it was it was you that put me in touch with Gary from the crossing that we had on earlier in the podcast. And I know that Gary used your research uh, for the development of their character to Terry so how did you feel when you uh, found these creative outlets looking at the, the subject matter I think it's great that people are using more creative aspects to talk about some of these um, quite sensitive and personal aspects in men's lives there seems to have been a bit of a surge of interest in making documentaries and films both about infertility but also there there are films in production about the experience of being a young father at the moment so it's great that people are engaging with other creative mediums that can be really effective and really powerful ways to convey really important messages so um, it's great that people are um, starting those discussions and dialogues and and talking about men's experiences in these in these realms of fathering and fatherhood and opening that up to a much wider audience yeah exactly it makes it so much more accessible well dr esme hannah thank you so much for your time and keep up the good work brilliant thanks very much natalie thank you you want to find out more about what we've talked about in this episode including the research the film just go to the show notes which are the fertilitypodcast.com season five male infertility to keep up to date with all my latest episodes do get yourself to the fertilitypodcast.com you can sign up for my newsletter and you can subscribe to the podcast